Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So there are a lot of different ways to be an artist in this world. Every now and then someone will come in on the show and you'll realize that the way they see it is like, go it alone, keep your head down, focus on yourself and yourself only. No disrespect to people like that. That's definitely like a a wise way to go through the art world. But another involves being part of a community. Not only do you get to stand in the spotlight as an artist, but you use that spotlight to shine the light on others around you. That's the kind of artist that Amanda Paris is. Amanda's a playwright, a writer, a TV show producer here in Canada, did a lot of work here at the CBC, won a Governor General's Award, which is the biggest arts prize in Canada. And honestly, a lot of artists would keep it there, you know, enjoy the success, worry about number one, drink one of those, you know, frozen daiquiris with a umbrella in it. But Amanda Paris is a broadcaster and community leader, and she spends a lot of time sharing the work of other black artists and and interviewing folks. And I've known Amanda for a really long time. When she was working here at the CBC, we did a lot of work together. You know, we hosted award shows and we hosted like TV shows and stuff like that. And one thing that always um, stuck out to me is Amanda's work in amplifying other voices. And I realized that Amanda and I never really sat down and gone deep on her own story. So when we heard Amanda was making a new documentary series for the CBC, it's brilliant. It's called For the Culture. We jumped at the chance to get her in the studio. If you're not as familiar with Amanda Paris, get ready for this story. Here's our conversation. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you feeling? Kind of nervous, weirdly, because now you're going to ask me questions about me, which I don't think happens very often. Yeah, I normally, you know, in the old days when I used to do panels on this show, mm-hmm. I would have you on to like talk about something that was happening in the yeah. or spotlight somebody else. Can do that easily. Yep. Well, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so foreboding. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we could start at the beginning. Um, uh, uh, England, but you were born in England, yes. right? Uh, tell me a little bit about that, about being born in England and coming to Canada. Yeah, so the first 10 years of my life were spent in London, England, and I was uh, part of a very big uh, connected family, you know, at the at my grandparents' house every weekend. My cousins were like my siblings, lots of uncles. And then my mom made this decision to pick us up and move to Toronto, Canada, which I we had family here, a more distant family, and we'd come to visit. I'd come to visit twice. And so I, I always felt very positive because we'd always come to visit in the summer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the place where you go on vacation. And I felt very sophisticated coming back and be like, I went to Canada. Um, but it wasn't a place that I had ever thought about living. And our lives changed drastically. We went from having this very big interne- interconnected family to just being my mom and I in Scarborough, um, Ontario. And uh and just there was a huge culture shock coming here. It's very, very different from London as a city. And um, yeah, it was a very defining moment of my life, that shift and that change. What do you remember about that culture shock? What do you remember about those first few months? 
The biggest uh, change was just like how to get around. You know, we lived in London where you didn't even think about getting a car because it was so unnecessary. You know, we were walking distance to three different subway stations and then we got to Scarborough where, <laughs> um, you know, we'd have to wait like 45 minutes for a bus and you'd have to walk 15 minutes to that bus stop and that bus took you to a train station that was like 40 minutes away. It was so, and that wasn't even a train station, it was like the RT. And, you know, it was just so bad getting around that it, for the first time in my life, I started to realize, oh, we are lacking things. Yeah. Um, and uh, just the, like I, when I was growing up in London, we were part of a community. We, we lived in these flats or apartments where everyone knew each other and, you know, everyone took care of each other's kids and all the kids played together. And then we moved to the suburb, you know, where we were living in the basement of a family member's house. And no, none of the neighbors talked to each other. Mm. It didn't have that community atmosphere. Mm. And for the first time ever, I realized I was uh, the child to a single parent, which had never come up before. But all of a sudden, it was this big thing. Like, oh, you're just with your mom. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I really am just with my mom. And we really felt that uh, this this sense that your family was very much defined by like your mom, your dad, your siblings, which was not the case when I was in London. It felt much more expansive. Right. You weren't um, the child of a single mom in London because you had family all around you. Yeah. Or you had friends all around you. You, yeah. had, you had people people looking after you. You had people being there with you. When did you start to find community in Toronto? That took a while. It took a long time. We moved a few times. Um, and I think it wasn't until I was in probably college and university. I think up until then, you know, you have your friend circles, but they're very defined by the schools that you're in. And it's more so like who makes sense <laughs> demographically as opposed to who makes sense spiritually and who yeah, you connect yeah. with. And so it wasn't until I think in undergrad and university, I went to York University, that I started to find community and place. Um, and it just felt like the whole world opened up to me in a very interesting way. Like there were just so many different people people who are passionate and activists and knew what they wanted to fight for in the world. I started to think about things to fight for. I took this life-altering class called uh, Cultures of Resistance in the Americas with Dr. Andrea Davis, who's actually featured in the first episode of For the Culture, the new show. She's a teacher that changed my life, my first ever Black teacher. And she taught us about uh, the history of Black folks in the Americas, but from the lens of resistance, which mm. was incredible. Um, and my whole frame of understanding myself and my place in the world shifted with that class. Why? It was this really powerful way. She used so much um, incredible literature. We read Edwidge Danticat and Dion Brand. And, you know, it was my first time reading W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, just all of these incredibly important writers that started to, you know, C.L.R. James, like so many writers that started to make me think about what it means to be Black as a point of like power and organizing and community and diasporic connectivity. I didn't even know what diaspora was before that class, right, you right, know? Right, right, yeah. um, and all these things that I'd grown up with started making sense, you know, all of these beautiful things like going to Brixton to the movie theater and watching um, uh, Spike Lee movies with my aunt and uncle and realizing why it was so important for them to take me and my cousins to those movies and be in that movie theater specifically. And then all these other more problematic things that, you know, wanting to straighten my hair all the time. Why did I want to do that? Where did that come from? All of a sudden, this class had me questioning the the ways that I thought about beauty and where those the roots of those ideas came from. So it was just a completely life-shifting, life-altering class. Uh, up, up until then, like, was, was art a viable path for you, like being an artist, you know, writing? It was the 
so writing was the first thing I ever wanted to do as a kid. I was like, I was right. I was a huge avid reader, and I always used to see my mom reading novels like Tom Clancy novels. Oh yeah, all those yeah, on, super thriller John novels. John Le Carre, I get it. She yeah, loved sure, those kinds yeah. of novels, and so she would always just be sitting on a couch and reading. So I was like, okay, that's that's a thing to do. So I would read as well too voraciously. And I used to start writing my own stories. And that was the first dream I ever had for myself was to be a writer. That was that was the thing I wanted to do most. And I had so much encouragement from my teachers, from my mom. But then there was that one uncle. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like <laughs> the T-O-U moment of the conversation. Yeah. That one uncle. That one uncle. Why do I happen with that one uncle? So he, you know, he was, <laughs> and he has no memory of this conversation, you know, bless him. Um, but he was like, you know, you're such a smart little girl. What do you want to be when you get older? And I think I was probably around like, I don't know, seven, eight. And I said, with all the confidence in the world, I want to be a writer. And he's like, a writer? Oh, a no. writer. He's no. like, don't you want to take care of your mom? Don't you want to be broke for the rest of your life? Writers don't make money. And that was the first time anyone had ever framed it like that to me. I had only thought about the creative possibilities and, you know, this thing of t- telling stories was seems so magical to me. And then all of a sudden he said that. And of course I want to take care of my mom. When you're an only child of a single parent, you're constantly thinking about that. And maybe other people are thinking about that a lot too. But I knew for myself, it was like, this is part of your purpose on this planet is to take care of the person that brought you here. And he made me feel like my dream was so selfish that it would never achieve that. Mm. You know, and in his defense, maybe that did feel like the reality, you know? And so I put my dream away from that moment on, from that one conversation that he doesn't have any memory of, (laughs) (laughs) and tried to have more practical dreams. And it took a long time, uh, many, many years before I came back into any sort of creative ambitions. Well, well, even though you were getting into more uh, community activism and and doing community work in in Toronto, and you had had this like life-changing experience at at university, you were still using art, like you were still using hip hop, especially to connect to to kids in your your neighborhood. Just take a listen to this. Amanda, can you tell us what we're listening to there? <laughs> yeah, this was a it was an event we used to throw at the end of every program called the live report card. And instead of like issuing a report card we would have this event where we would share with the community, with, you know, the caregivers and parents and teachers and just community members that cared about these young people that we were working with, um, share with them some of the stuff that they've been creating over the time that we've been together. And, you know, Lost Lyrics, which is what the organization that I co-founded uh, alongside Natasha Daniel, um, was all about trying to transform our ways of thinking about how we learn and what we learn and, you know, what are the tools we use to engage young people and and so we used a lot of hip hop, we used a lot of um, visual art, theater to just like engage with these young people and then they would create this art. And it was so funny because we were introducing all of these mediums, but in my head I was like, yeah, no, but I'm not an artist. Like this is what I do as a way to engage them and to, you know, to champion them and I can help facilitate the development of other artists, but I myself am mm, not an artist. That one uncle. That one uncle. So then... <laughs> Poor, sorry, Uncle Gregory. There's a, there's a, I was, I was wondering if you were going to say his name. Because if all your uncles going like, that wasn't me. Like, that wasn't. Uh, uh, you're, you're doing this community work around art. You're thinking to yourself, oh, this is great. We're using art to tr- try and hopefully make a, a, the world a better place. Um, but I'm not an artist. 
my understanding is something happens. There is like a bit of a light bulb moment where you yeah. go like, I maybe maybe I can do this. What what was that? Yeah, I, I got a, an opportunity to go to Nairobi, Kenya for this um, exchange program for community leaders in Nairobi and Toronto. And uh, while we were there, we met with these young girls who were part of this incredible after-school program. And they were sharing with us all that they learned in that program, which was like the most amazing program. They learned how to fix cars, play basketball, uh, do theater, do music and dance. And I was like completely blown away. And then they were like, okay, your turn. And I was like, I'm sorry, excuse me, what? They're like, so show us what you do and how, you know, the, the creative things that you have and I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not an artist. And they looked at me like I said, I eat cockroaches for breakfast. They were like, what are you talking about? Everyone's an artist. Everyone can create. What are you actually saying? And I stopped and felt so silly. And I realized that I had this very Western idea of an artist, like the tortured artist who's like working up in their attic. And this is all that they do. But they didn't have that idea of an artist. They had an idea. Their idea of an artist was this creative potential that's inside of everyone that you can choose to tap into mm -hmm. or not. And that they've exposed to me that I was just choosing not to tap into that. And so, you know, I went home and I started thinking more and I remembered all those early dreams of like writing and um, I decided to return to a little bit of it. And so I looked around and was like, where do I see black women creating work in the city that I'm really moved by. And theater was the place. You know, I was incredibly inspired after seeing The Kinky My Hair, the Mervish production. Uh, I was like obsessed with Wayne Mangesha and Debbie Young and all of these incredible black women um, creating work. Be Current, this theater company was doing really amazing programs. And so I just started joining all of these theater companies' programs. Did you feel nervous stepping into these worlds yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was a very uncomfortable, um, humbling experience. But it was also just like that adrenaline of realizing I don't know, and I'm going to have to be uncomfortable and vulnerable. It's something that I feel like I'm constantly chasing. Like, I don't want to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, I, I do want to get good and continuously hone my skills. But I also want to push myself and, and force myself to do something different. And um, you know, the last few years I've been so lucky and that was the beginning of that journey of like, get out of the comfort zone, push yourself, be, be okay with being the newbie and not knowing. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Be okay. Being okay with not knowing is something easier said than done. The guest you're listening to right there, Amanda Paris, it's how she does her best work. Up until this point, Amanda's been talking to you about how she became this award-winning playwright and working up that courage after a very, we'll say, well-meaning uncle <laughs> dissuaded her from her hopes and dreams. In the next part of our conversation, Amanda's going to talk about writing her debut play, which was her big breakout. I've seen the show. It's, it's called Other Side of the Game. It's brilliant. And it's inspired by a personal experience she had at a jail in Toronto. I wanted to get that story from her. I had a friend who was incarcerated at the Don Jail, which is now since closed down. And I went to visit him several times. And I was always struck by those experiences because um, the visiting hours were always at very inconvenient times in the middle of the day. 
you couldn't go in there with like a cell phone or a laptop. So there was this like convenience store across the street that had this little side hustle where you had to pay them to like store your stuff for like $2, like toonie. Um, and there was just, you know, this really, like there's just a series of experiences going through um, trying to get in to see this person. And then as soon as I, was, as I would sit in the visitor's waiting room and looked around, almost always it was like 90% filled with women. Um, and I was so curious about their stories of coming to see these folks that were, you know, locked up behind bars and what they had to do to get out of work that day to see them. Mm. You know, did they, what did they do with their electronics? Mm. Like, how, did they remember to bring their ID? You know, like, I was just very curious, but it was a very uncomfortable space to start conversation. You can't really just like nudge someone and be like, hey, so what brought you here? It's just a very tense space. So instead, I started just asking people that I knew who I knew had supported loved ones who were incarcerated, whether it was like a, a family member, a lover, um, in some cases, even a student, what that experience was like. And I just brought along an audio recorder and just taped the conversations, not really knowing what I was going to do with them. Um, and it was so, it was, you know, such a moving thing. And you know this in talking to people and asking them to share something that nobody's ever asked them about. People feel very um, touched to get a chance to speak and to be listened to. Did you hear anything that surprised you? So much. Um, there were so all these experiences and there were so many patterns across the experiences. And it just felt like this was this untapped world that no one was capturing. Like whenever you watch a police show, there's so much stuff about Law and Order, not to say the actual name of the TV show, <laughs> but like just in general, sorry, Law and Order on television. Um, but it's always like either following the police or the person who gets arrested. Yeah, And they never yeah. follow, like if they kick down a door and they grab someone in that apartment, there's a scuffle. They, they're following those people that they just grabbed. And, yeah. and you never see who has to stay behind to clean up that door that just got knocked down or all those drawers that just got like ransacked. And those were the people that I was interested in, like the women that had to clean up the mess after the fact. Well, it's, it's kind of like looking at the humanity rather than the narrative. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But there's also a narrative there, right? Yeah. Like there's a really fascinating narrative there. So that was, that was the spark that led to that play. Um, and then that play... Pretty good. Gets published in book form and wins the Governor General's Award for English Language Drama. If you're listening to this outside of Canada, you should know that's the most prestigious award an artist can really win in, in Canada. So what goes through your head when that happens? <laughs> I I mean, it was it felt like I was in a dream. I you know, I didn't even know it was submitted for consideration for the award. So even when the shortlist was announced, that was already mind blowing. And I was just so thankful to be in that list of people. And then when that happened, I just, and it still feels a little bit unreal, to be honest. It still feels, I still sometimes have these, like, are they sure? <laughs> are they sure they got the right person? Are they going to call me and be like, man, we made a mistake. You know, we... that was that one year <laughs> where <laughs> we kind of, yeah, it just still feels very unreal. It, it must have felt, I mean, let's just let's just say that gratitude is assumed here. Like, it's yeah. of course, but like, it, it must have also felt like some sort of validation. Like, hey, you know, I was told I wasn't an artist for a long time. Um, I, I realized that art can be a part of everything I do. And, and you know, I win this thing. There, there got to be something there there is for sure and it's it's awards are weird right like I think um there can be a degree but I try not to put too much 
emphasis on them all, as as grateful as I am to have received some. But I think, you know, the validation for me in terms of like, I am an artist really came from when the women that I interviewed came and sat in the audience. Oh, tell me about that. Yeah, when they came and sat in the audience and watched the play and they gave me their feedback and told me how affirmed they felt, how much they felt seen when they broke down and cried, like, you know, or where they laughed along with it. Like that was the moment where I was like, oh, I did something here, you know? And then I think the award is like a cherry on top, but I think um, having that moment, and that's always sort of my barometer, especially when I'm asking people to share their stories with me. Like, how did I do for you? Because that is my ultimate responsibility because you trusted me with it. Your, your your barometer is is their reaction, their, yeah. how they felt seen, how yes. they felt you told the story accurately. How I handled it, you know, how, how I treated it. Um, did I do it with respect? Do you feel like it was done with integrity? Do you, did you leave feeling like it was extractive, which is like what I would never want to be? You know, so th- that's that to me is like the, has become one of my primary barometers for like, d- did I do well? Talk to me a little bit more about like, I don't want it to be extractive. It's something that I, I think about uh, mm. a lot in this work. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an accusation that's thrown to a lot of media because a lot of the times the ways that we tell stories is very fast. It's very reactionary. Um, it's like, give me, what is the, the line? What it, If it bleeds, it leads, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. what is the most sensational part of this thing that I can utilize, you know? And um, when I was doing a residency program with Debbie Young, she really drilled in us this idea of like integrity in the process. And so I often think about, you know, am I coming in with the right intentions? And the thing that I'm making, is that thing going to be honoring the process that I promised the person that I was speaking with that I would honor? You know, it's like that I'm not going to just take the the sensational part and like leave you as just a headline and not a human, you know? Tom Power, you're listening to Q. That was part one of my conversation with playwright, producer, and broadcaster Amanda Paris. Coming up, uh, you're going to hear about the time she convinced an Oscar-winning actor to drop a few bars on stage. Spoiler alert, this Oscar-winning actor rapped for like five minutes straight. Amanda wasn't expecting it. Any guesses who that was? That's right, Bruce Stern. No, I'm only joking. Plus, she'll talk about the new project that has her reconsidering the direction of her life. More with Amanda Paris coming up. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Power, you're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Governor General award-winning playwright Amanda Paris. Amanda, also a writer and broadcaster, who has spent her career so far trying to amplify the work of other black artists. And if you don't know, if you're not here in Canada, Amanda hosted multiple art shows on the CBC, a great one called The Exhibitionists, The Filmmakers, excellent radio show called Marvin's Room. She wrote this column called Black Light that was all about shining a light on black voices in, in Canada's arts scene. 
2016. You know, groundbreaking work uh, uh, for the CBC, groundbreaking work for, for Canada. And in the next part of our conversation, a little bit more about Amanda, the arts reporter. Uh, she's interviewed everyone from Spike Lee to Lena Waithe and Roxanne Gay. But, you know, Amanda and I are, are good buddies. And I remember watching this interview she did um, a few years ago. It was in Toronto at the Toronto International Film Festival. And she was interviewing the actor Mahershala Ali live on stage. And because Mahershala Ali, even though he's an Oscar-winning actor, used to be a rapper, she kind of challenged him to, I don't know, to drop some bars. And, and he did. Just take a listen to this. We need some Similac or something similar. Mama's breast milk was dripping cyanide. Sipping on a nipple that's been up for auction. The diamond on her finger never made it mine. We need some Similac or something similar. Mama's breast milk is dripping cyanide. Sipping on a nipple that's been up for auction. That diamond on her finger never made it mine. Mm. What goes through your mind listening to that? Oh, man, that was such a trip. That day was like the wildest day of my career that thus far. Um, but yeah, in that interview, because I interviewed uh, Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. Barry Jenkins, mm-hmm. and Mahershala Ali in one day. Oh, easy. Yeah. Easy, easy peasy. <laughs> but anyway, in that interview, I remember I had done so much research because it was like, I'm like, I got to do this really well. And I had found out he'd been a rapper. And so I started the interview off by like reciting some of his own rap lyrics to him. And then at the end, I was like, do you mind dropping us a few bars? I thought it was just going to drop a one-two line. And he goes into this incredible, it felt like poetry as well, too. It was just so beautiful. And it just kept going. You know, you're sitting there, you're like, he's still going. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) You just try to control yourself. It was so great and so beautiful. Um, And he was just so generous in general. And so for him to just drop it like that in this incredible way, and he had his eyes closed and he's in a zone. It's one of those magical moments you just... You can't you can't plan. The the interviewing prowess uh, comes up a lot in the new show, in in for the culture, uh, which is the series out in Canada right now. Um, I, I want to play a little bit of clip of the trailer. Just take a listen. I want to talk to Black folks from across the diaspora. Because of what I look like, because of what I am, the British industry boxed me in. I want to make space for urgent conversations. Black children are being harassed routinely. Let's imagine new possibilities. We want to be modern day 21st century revolutionaries. Because now is the time to take the group chat to the real world. Well, let's drink to that. This is For the Culture. It's Amanda Paris uh, with a bit of the trailer from her new documentary series, For the Culture. What was the germ of the idea here? I really wanted, you know, all of the shows that I've hosted, including with you, hey, <laughs> alongside with you. But what um, was that? Uh, from the Vault. From the Vault. Oh, I remember he that. He said, what was that? It's so <laughs> deep in his memory vault. <laughs> I remember it well. I thought you were, t- we did two. We did two. We did From the Vaults. We also did the Polaris Prize together. Oh, yeah. But that was a show. Like, that was a live oh, show. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. just trying to get away with it. I'm, what I'm really trying to say, I host so many shows, man. Right. It's just hard He's to just keep like, track of it. I can't even it. remember yeah, can't even that track old of thing. From yeah. the vaults, I remember that very From well. The vaults, I, remember, yeah. I had a great time hanging out in these cold archives downstairs. You were literally in a refrigerator, a freezer. We had a we had a laugh. We did. Yeah, and you were fine, and I was in a bubble jacket because you are. You love the cold. I'm from Newfoundland. I'm yeah. used to it. You know, that's it. I don't know if I told you that, but I'm from Newfoundland. <laughs> You've never mentioned it. That's so weird. <laughs> I know. I tell you know. Every now and then, I bring it up <laughs> to special people. Uh, sorry. So, what was the what was the germ of the idea? Yeah. So, you know, I have I've had an amazing experience hosting so many different shows, um, but they've all been in studio, 
And I really wanted to be out in the world. I pitched it in 2020 when we were all locked in our homes. So I think that was probably part of it as well, too. But I really thought that there could be something magical about meeting people in places that are significant to them, whether it's their home, whether it's, you know, a restaurant where we're sharing a meal together. Like, I just loved this idea of connecting with people where the story is happening. Um, And I wanted to talk about, I wanted to do a show that would uh, talk about issues that were dominating my group chat and, you know, were all, were things that were trending on social media that I thought were really fascinating, but didn't get to go very far in the conversation on those platforms. And so I was hoping that we could do a show that would be kind of like, you know, Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, where we have that adventure and that travel. But instead of each episode being focused on a place, I wanted to be focused on a topic. And I wanted the adventure to be in delving deep into that topic. Um, And then the third thing that I was really eager to do was just to start having conversations between Black folks around the world, across diasporas, because I found myself missing that in, in television, um, whenever there was a show about Black folks, it was very specifically African-American or Black British or Black Canadian. But the way my brain works, and particularly as somebody who comes from the UK, lives in Canada, consumes so much American pop culture, I'm always having this cross-border conversation in my head. And so I just wanted to do that on screen. And so those three things were like my primary goals. I mean, it's 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 a it's a brilliant show, but I'm I'm curious about what it did for you. I mean, the the uh, let's just talk about one of the episodes, the Diaspora Wars one, which mm-hmm. is the one they screened the other night and here in Toronto at at TIFF at the film festival screening um at the at the theater in downtown Toronto and um, in, in it, you talk to the director and, and artist and filmmaker Terrence Nance, and he talks about the importance of the Black diaspora finding each other and creating spaces to bond. Did making the show do that for you? It did in that it felt like the world opened up a little bit. I've been thinking a lot about why I'm still in Canada. Uh, you know, it was the place my mom chose to come to. I didn't choose to come here. And it's like, you know, being here still is a choice that I don't know if I've been consciously making or just accidentally making. Um, it's been a place that's given me so much, but, you know, traveling around and speaking to people, Gina Yashere literally was like pitching me real estate agents to talk to in LA. She's like, you need to come here, get out of this Toronto, like come here. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Like LA, one thing, London, getting to film in London, going back home and getting to work there was such a beautiful experience. Incredible. And then talking to somebody like Zoe Smith, who made this decision to move her and her three kids to Grenada because she wanted a space where her son wouldn't be in a state of threat all the time, mm. was a huge, like, life-altering conversation to have because it makes me think about my son, you know. And I've said this publicly before, but when he was about six months old, my husband was walking him in our neighborhood and the police followed them for blocks. Mm. And it was a, such a reminder that things are not changing fast enough here for the life that I want for my son. And so, yeah, no, I think the world opened up a lot for me. Um, I think I'm I'm thinking about, you know, where I want to be based and live. I'm thinking about um, 
so many different things. And that's why after this, I'm just going to take a break to think more because I feel very <laughs> shifted by the whole show, but I haven't fully absorbed exactly what those shifts are going to manifest into. We were joking around off the top that you've never been on this show really to talk about your own. I mean, I think you came on to talk about the other side of the game, but you had never really come on to talk about your your own story mm-hmm. before. And it had spent so much of your career taking any spotlight on you and shining it on, making sure it was shining on other other people. Where Where does that come from? No one in my family was like a professional artist necessarily, but uh, I grew up in a family that is constantly just, as I said, it was a community, you know? You go to the store and you see that bread is on sale, so you buy some extra bread for Auntie Homian and you buy some extra bread for Grad and like, you know, you're just constantly like giving to other people. That's that's what my... Don't buy anything for that uncle. Even for Uncle Gregory. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't buy <laughs> any bread. Uncle. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, he can get his own bread with his. <laughs> he has no memory. And when I brought it up to him, he's like, I would never say that. I support you completely. And You're he like, does. Yeah, he's yeah, so yeah, supportive. Sure. I got bread for everybody else, Uncle Gregory. <laughs> I got bread for everybody. Sorry. Go ahead. Go it's ahead. It's okay. Ahead. But yeah, no, you know, I just remember going to the market in Shepherd's Bush and we just would like. You're never just getting for yourself. You're always thinking about everybody else. And so that model has been just demonstrated to me from then. And then spending most of my 20s doing community work, that completely shaped all of my principles, you know, about, you know, what my purpose is, about who I'm doing this for. And so by the time I didn't start working in television until I was in my 30s. And so by the time I came in, I was a grown person who had a very strong sense of self and a very strong sense of like why I'm doing this work. I I think you know that I feel um, so, so warmly towards you. And I'm so glad that we've been able to spend so much time together over the past few years. And I think For the Culture is so great and so smart and so I mean, never, never really seen anything like it, especially in Canada. And I'm just so happy for you, man. Thank you. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Uh, my conversation with the multi-talented Amanda Paris, writer, producer, and showrunner, award-winning playwright, Uncle Denier. Her latest project is a six-part documentary series called For the Culture. If you're in Canada, you can watch the whole thing now on CBC Channel. Tom Power, you're listening to Q. If you're the parent of a young child or if you know the parents of young children, you know that good, affordable childcare or any childcare right now can be hard to find. And it doesn't help that even in the richest countries in the world, childcare can be seriously under-resourced, which leads to all kinds of frustrations for the people who provide it and the people that seek it out. Amy Nosbacken and Nora Sadova are two Toronto-based theater makers who want to sound the alarm for you on just how urgent the issue of accessible childcare is right now. Amy and Nora run a theater company called Quote Unquote Collective, where they create theater that examines issues through a feminist lens. They're best known for the 2015 play Mouthpiece, which won awards around the world, toured internationally, was turned into a feature film. Their new production, Universal Child Care, is part concert and part theater piece, and it examines the topic of child care in four of the wealthiest countries in the world, Canada, the UK, the US, and Japan. It's a piece about rage. It makes you think about broken systems, about inequality. But listen, also work about the love parents have for their children and why child care is so meaningful to them because of how much they care about their own youngsters. Amy Nosbacken is the co-creator and composer of Universal Child Care. We spoke last week about how the play came to be, and Amy set up one of the pieces from the show. Amy, uh, how are you? Thanks for being here. 
It's my pleasure. Uh, I'm doing good. I'm deep in rehearsal mode and we open in a week. So we're right in it. I'm glad I got the only 10 minutes you can probably spare today. <laughs> <laughs> so so you and the co-creator of Universal Child Care have called this piece a concept album, a song cycle, mm-hmm. a singing, dancing, screaming for policy change. Uh, talk to me about this. Some of this is based on your own experiences, right? Yeah, well, we started making the show uh, before either of us had children. And that came from a place where we thought we might one day want to have children. And we looked at the reality and were smacked by the fact that we would have to choose that we're artists living in Toronto and can't afford to have a baby and a career and thought how boring, how cliche that this is our reality. And it filled us with such a rage um, and we didn't know where to put that. So uh, we put it in, into song, uh, into into this play. And then while making it, uh, between us, we've had three kids. And the reality, the truth and the detail of what it is actually like to try to work while you have a child or to try to get your child in daycare. Because we'd started making this show while, you know, while I was pregnant for the first time, I had all the intel on on what one is supposed to do. So I was on 16 waiting lists from the day I peed on the stick <laughs> and still my firstborn did not get into childcare until uh, he was two and a half. And so to try to be a human being without any support has all gone into this show and, and the nuances of what it's like to be a caregiver, what it's like to be a parent. Um, is also told through the voices of we started interviewing caregivers and parents around the world. And those interviews were so rich. uh, We just had to put them in the show. What did you what did you find in those in those interviews? Well, a lot of the same things were said. And then, of course, a lot of very different things were said, a lot of unique points of view, depending on the country, depending on the situation, depending on whether you're a single parent or not. We also interviewed daycare workers and the insight there is just staggering. I mean, like even if just taking the people who uh, work at daycare centers just in Toronto, it's just like the amount that they are paid, it's peanuts. It's it's shocking. And a core tenet of this show, this sort of center question we have in this show is, you know, we all agree that the first five years of a human being's life are the most important. And yet we do not care. We do not value the people who are looking after those kids zero to five, the next generation who are going to be, you know, helping us as we age. Like We just don't give a crap. <laughs> like to put it mildly, we don't pay them. We don't consider them. We don't value them. We're not even thinking about them. Right. And so to me, when I'm watching the rehearsals, when I'm doing the run-throughs of the show, and I see that it's a 90-minute show with 22 numbers, all about the subject matter, to me, it feels like, yes, we need a 90-minute musical, like a 90-minute singing and dancing and sweating and bleeding piece, because where the heck is that? Like, we should be shouting, we should be standing in the streets. And like, to be honest, people are standing in the streets, like especially in Britain and the United States at this moment, where, you know, three million children are being ripped from their daycares uh, because of policy change. Like people are in the streets, but 
I don't see that much art about it. And I feel like we should all be a little angrier. And uh, that's often the place where the seed of a show comes from um, for Nora and I is that like pit of anger where we're screaming into a void. And instead of a void, we replace it with a theater. Let, let, let me just make sure I understand something here. Because the question I wanted to ask you was, you know, how do you like, how do you go from having this anger to the, to a, a, an acapella choral piece? But I, I think I might understand it. Like it's, it's that idea of, of, of anger, yeah. the idea of like verbalizing it, the idea of shouting it, which is something you can kind of do artistically through choral music. Well, also because what it feels like, apart from the anger or the rage or the frustration at the injustice here, um, what it feels like to be a parent is just, um, it's so hard to put into words. And, you know, the first thing that comes to our minds is through music and movement as well. But uh, music, we just use to express all of those big emotions and feelings and uh, just like ways of parts of life that are just too big for words. So yeah, there's very little spoken dialogue in the show. In that way, it is like a concept album. It's song after song. And uh, I should say we examine the four richest countries of, in the world because you one would think one could afford to uh, put money into this like domestic crisis. But we also examine there is a, there's there's an eighth character of a caregiver from Mexico who looks after all the kids in these wealthy countries. So we are also examining that part that whose shoulders are we standing on, whose backs are we standing on to get ahead and to climb and to just keep our heads above water. What what year did you start thinking about this? Twenty eighteen. Okay. Usually it happens when we're wrapping up one show, like before we before we stop performing one show, we get the seed for the next. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we've been working on it for a while. Okay, so so two years after that, 2020 comes around, 2020, 2021, childcare, I, mean, I don't want to give the impression that it wasn't already something on mm-hmm. a lot of people's minds, but it becomes even more clearly into focus in a lot of people's minds because of the pandemic. Does that, does that change? Does that impact how, how you make this thing? Well, I would say that it directly influenced the existence of this show in that, you know, during the pandemic, yeah, we had three kids, you know, living was harder. And I think I could speak for a lot of artists where artists during the pandemic questioned, like, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, is making art a direct enough uh, line to changing the planet? And so we thought, well, maybe, uh, you know, we won't be theater makers anymore and maybe we'll drop this show. And, you know, anecdotally that one of the one of the commissioners of this show in the States, uh, well, at that point, we had just pitched the show. We pitched the show to them, say, do you want to, you know, make this show with us? And they said, no, but maybe if you go on tour. And then we got a cold call during the pandemic from this theater saying that the board, largely made up of men during the pandemic, had realized uh, firsthand how hard it is to work while you have the child and also how important the subject matter is like how this makes the world go around and if you remove unpaid labor done by far by landslide by women if you remove that then uh what we're left with is chaos and uh you know society doesn't function so this theater put us at the top of the list and gave us some money and said we need to make this show needs to happen so it just took a global pandemic for uh, for for, <laughs> for a group of men on a board to realize that childcare matters. To, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And and I think a lot of the rest of you, as you say, a lot of the, a lot of the rest of the world too, sort of yeah, spotlight. 
Um, we're we're going to hear a piece from Universal Chuck here from an audio version of the show that you put out. The piece is called Love Letter from a Father. So uh, can you set up the scene for us a little bit? Like what's happening in the show when we hear this song? Sure. I mean, this is a bit later in the show. And uh, after a lot of singing and dancing about um, the challenges that we've just spoken about, uh, we needed to give space for the love, for, for the love. Um, and so this is... This is recited by uh, a father who's who's uh, you know just been fired because he's taken too much time off for family care needs, and they've had to leave their home and they it's just in the United States. So from their baby's first breath, they're st- strapped with a hundred and three thousand dollar hospital bill, um, and the United States is the only industrialized nation on the planet with zero mandated parental leave. So all you know stacked against this this father. And yet, through all that, he finds hope and love through his daughter. And uh, this recording is uh, recorded by Akosia Amo Adam. And eventually, if you come see it live, it'll be performed by Joma Frith. The 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 story I heard is that you, this piece we're about to hear was written um, before you, you had kids, and it was based around something you observed, like your, your brother's uh, own experience of fatherhood. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, he he. I started making this show, and and uh, uh, the way I like to make music the best is is before I know much about the show, and I'm just going off of instinct and going off of what I know about the theme. And what I knew about the theme at that point was how my brother described being a father and what it was like to have a daughter and seeing the world through her eyes. So. You know, I got in the closet with some blankets and spewed it out, and it ended up in the show. It ended up pretty accurate to my own experience. Well, I'm glad people are going to get a chance to listen to this. I'm glad people are, are, are hopefully going to be able to go see the show at, at Canadian Stage. I'm happy to get, again, 10 minutes of your time when you're in the middle of rehearsals. Uh, would you would you mind doing me a favor and just telling us who you are and, and setting up the piece that we're about to hear? My name's Amy Nosbacken. This piece is called Love Letter from a Father from Universal Child Care, performed by Akosia Amo Adam. I thought I was one way, but turns out I wasn't any different from any other open sore, weeping, embarrassing, or is it? My heart, sinew, strings, bleeding, I hum in my sleep. That was Love Letter from a Father, performed by Akosio Amo Adam. Before that, my conversation with Amy Nosback and the co-creator and composer of the new show, Universal Child Care. I should mention that if you do make it out to a performance of Universal Child Care, you'll hear that performance, uh, hear that piece, I should say, performed by Joma Frith. Universal Child Care opens on February 13th, runs until February 25th at Canadian Stage, which is in downtown Toronto. That's it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, uh, have you heard about this new biopic about Bob Marley? It's called uh, Bob Marley, One Love. It's about a really specific era of Bob Marley's life in the late 1970s. So Ronaldo Marcus Green is the director of the film. He'll be here to talk about why he wanted to focus on that era and how you deal making a film about Bob Marley when Bob Marley's family is involved in the making of the film. Lots to say on that really interesting conversation. That's tomorrow on the show. If you're not already subscribed to our podcast, Q with Tom Power is the best way to do, probably the only way to do that. And on Instagram, uh, I'm at Tom Joe Power. The show is at CBCQ. All right, we'll see you soon. Later on. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.